Is the pandemic finally over? Kansas joining just a handful of states in dropping all COVID emergency orders. Another shoe dropping in Kansas City's police funding dispute. From resignations to new council resolution that says officers should no longer prioritize catching criminals. If we prevent crime, we don't have to worry about catching the bad person. Overland Park getting ready to vote on what some are now calling Lexus Lanes. What do you think about charging tolls on one of the city's busiest roadways? Let the people vote for it. If they say yes, great, they do it. Or they say no, we're going to live with what we have. It strikes me that KDOT's attitude is more of a it's my way or no highway. Those stories and the rest of the week's big local happenings straight ahead on Week in Review. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Nick Haynes, and it is good to be back after bringing you The Carpenters, The Bee Gees, and all manner of inspirational programs that help improve your brain and heart health during our membership drive over the last two weeks. I hope we can improve your heart and brain health during this program this week as we track the most impactful and inspiring stories happening where we live. Don't worry, the Kansas City Star's Dave Helling won't be belting out a couple of Bee Gees tunes during this show. Lisa Rodriguez, news director at KCUR, is probably wondering who are the Bee Gees. Also around the cozy confines of our virtual table this week, Michael Mahoney, chief political reporter at KNBC 9 News, and Eric Wesson, editor of The Call newspaper. I've mentioned before on this program that we have a viewer in Kansas called Frank who regularly emails me to complain about how many minutes we spend on the program talking about Missouri side issues and how many minutes we talk about Kansas. So, Frank, I am going to start with a Kansas side issue. Can we say this is the week that the pandemic is finally over, at least in Kansas, after 15 months, all pandemic emergency orders in the state officially expired this week. Governor Laura Kelly wanted to extend those emergency powers through the end of the summer, but she was overruled this week by the Republican legislative panel that makes decisions for lawmakers when they're not in session. Dave Helling, it sounds like a dramatic move, but with restaurants packed and very few people even wearing masks anymore in stores and other places, couldn't you already be forgiven for thinking that COVID is already history in the state? And so what does this decision really mean? Well, uh, it shows the politics of the COVID emergency have not gone away, Nick. By the way, I started a joke that started the whole world laughing. That's my beads. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for um, that. The, uh, uh, the reality is, and anyone who has ventured outside of his or her front door in the last two weeks understands this, no one seems worried about COVID at all anymore. That's a combination of vaccinations and other steps that people have taken. And so as a political matter, extending the emergency declaration uh, in, a, in an aggressive way was always going to be problematic. People are just tired of it. It's the summer. They want to do something else. Uh, but there was also a message sending involved in the Kansas story, Nick, because the Republicans didn't even uh, convene a meeting of the Legislative Council to consider the governor's request for a limited extension of COVID emergencies uh, because they've just grown tired of uh, her approach to the pandemic. But Lisa, if you think about what the emergency orders did, one of them, for instance, was allow the governor to bring out the National Guard to help administer and implement those big vaccination clinics, for instance. But for instance, right now, the state of Kansas is even turning away 
vaccines because so few people want it. So is there any practical difference that this makes? I, I think for, for most of us, you probably won't be able to tell that for most Kansans that an emergency declaration has ended. Really what it does is just kind of complicate some logistics. Um, the National Guard was helping with a lot of transportation of supplies and vaccines, and now that'll have to be handed over to the health department. Something to watch, though, and something the, the governor's office had said was that ending the emergency declaration could potentially mean that up to 65,000 households are not eligible for for SNAP benefits, those are food stamps. So that'll be something to watch going forward as well to see how that, if that has actually any practical effect in Kansas. Just before we headed into our membership drive, a decision by the mayor to pull more than $42 million from the police department budget topped our show. There were accusations he was defunding the police. He claims he's just holding the department accountable. But guess what? After weeks of accusations, lawsuits and threats, the issue is still unsettled and it's still causing anger and resentment. Now this week, one of the five members of the police board that filed a suit against the mayor and the city council to halt that cash grab has now resigned and the city council is drawing ire for a new resolution that calls on police to prioritize preventing crime rather than catching criminals. And so if we prevent crime, we don't have to worry about catching the bad person. And so that's what we need to be really focusing on is focusing on uh, prevention. That's City Councilwoman Melissa Robinson. Lots to unpack here, Eric Wesson, but I'm already getting a lot of emails from viewers saying uh, this has to stop. Um, I don't think many folks seem to believe on that council what the job of police is, and that is to catch criminals, isn't it? Yes, but they have a responsibility, and I think uh, Councilwoman Robinson's point is they have a responsibility to help prevent crime as well. And even going back to the demonstrations during the George Floyd uh, uh, murder, it's like police have just gotten hands off. It's like they let them police themselves. And I think that's where, one of the directions that she was going. Michael. I've, I've heard the same thing that you have uh, after we did that story, is that people are going, what? They're supposed to catch the bad guys. But there's an element of policing that is preventative and is trying to uh, uh, improve the community. And I think everybody agrees that simply locking up the bad guys is not the way to solve the problems in a long-term fashion. You were on the program, Lisa Rodriguez, the last program we did before our membership drive when this first sort of blew up. And at that time, I asked you, you know, we talk about this $42 million and, and it was going to go into community-related uh, services. We didn't know at that point in time what that was going to be spent on. Are we any the wiser now, three weeks later, as to where that money is going to be spent? We don't. We don't have any more specifics than we had three weeks ago. And whether that's due to all of this getting tangled up in a lawsuit and, and not knowing whether, you know, not wanting to plan until you know that you're actually going to be able to see this plan through. But but we don't know yet. All we know are, are the kind of the broader things that, that Michael just spoke about crime prevention efforts, community policing, mental health, these kind of broad topics that we're talking about, but we're still short on specifics. We had one of the members of the uh, Board of Police Commissioners resign this week, Dave Helling, one of five members there, Nathan Garrett. Why did he resign and what difference does any of this make to how this will move forward on this police funding issue and local control of police in the future? He left uh, as one of the members uh, for, he said, because he's moving out of Kansas City. Uh, and so is no longer eligible. Now, it should be pointed out, as very few reports did, that his term expired back in March. So he needed to leave anyway, uh, unless reappointed by the governor. Under state law, he could stay until the new appointment is made. 
but his term had expired. That's really the important thing here. Who will uh, Governor Mike Parson appoint to replace Nathan Garrett? Will he consult with community groups or will he go for someone north of the river? There's real uh, agitation that someone on the board should be north, uh, come from north of the uh, Missouri River. So that's an important decision and should be made relatively quickly, we assume, in the next couple of weeks. And that will go a long way to determine how this dispute continues. Uh, when Governor Parson appoints someone, it is going to be somebody philosophically very close to Parson's point of view on this dispute and Nathan Garrett's. And, and Parson has actually used the phrase that he believes what Kansas City is doing is defunding the police. So it might be a different person, but it, by and large, it's going to be the same philosophical approach. Eric. I think the turning point is going to come with the lawsuit that Gwen Grant filed on behalf of the citizens and taxpayers of Kansas City. And I believe if that lawsuit gets passed through the line, when it gets in the federal court, there's going to be some conversation, and I mean some very legal conversations, about local control of the police department. Whether or not it's legal uh, for them to maintain that control even today. And I think that lawsuit is going to open a lot of doors. That was very strategic, but I think that lawsuit will determine equal protection is in there, taxation without representation is in there. Dave Hallian, can I just say that the head of the police union is already saying, you know, because of all of this, it is having a dispiriting effect on officers. They're already now looking to move to other places, get out of the police department entirely. But is there any evidence whatsoever that even removing the 42 million to a community fund would mean less officers in Kansas City than we have today. There were specific line items cut from the police department budget by the city council in the original resolution that at least some members of the police department argued would be a reduction in force of three or 400 officers. That's under some dispute. But I do want to make a couple of clarifications that I think are important. First, Gwen Grant's lawsuit was not a lawsuit. She, it was a motion to intervene in the existing lawsuit uh, between the Board of Police Commissioners in Kansas City, and that's in state court. And as Eric points out, she raised the equal protection argument, but she also raised a fascinating argument that I write about for this weekend's newspaper uh, concerning the Hancock Amendment in Missouri, which prohibits unfunded state mandates. And if you follow the logic of the Hancock Amendment, it may be illegal for the police department to ask for anything more than 20 percent of the general fund because that was in, in place when the Hancock Amendment passed. That's a fascinating argument, important thing to consider. And that would not, we would believe, go to federal court. That would stay in state court. And that's an important thing to keep our eyes on. So this is something that's going to be going on for quite some time. This is not something that's going to be wrapped up in the next few weeks then, based on all of this. But one other point, and you asked about police officers leaving. I think it's more than just a budget. And one of the things, we had a town hall meeting with the city council members and the mayor several weeks ago. And one of the things that they said was the police budget has enough money and reserves to pay police officers through 2022. So when they talk about they're losing officers, they're doing this and that, I wonder if that's more politics to get public support and sympathy than the actuality of what money that they have on hand and whether or not police officers are leaving for that reason.
It would not be the first time that the Kansas City Police Department threatened a cutback of cops on the street because they didn't like the way a budget was going. You yeah. hear about ceasefire agreements between rival factions in war-torn countries, but what about here? A group of Kansas City ministers and anti-crime groups are calling for a 21-day ceasefire to prevent homicides starting this week. 21 days of no violence. No homicides, no killings in Kansas City. This is what we are calling for. The call for a ceasefire comes after a particularly violent day in Kansas City where three people actually were shot dead in separate incidents in a one-hour time span. But just because you beg people to stop, will they, Lisa Rodriguez? Uh, sadly and, and unfortunately, no. And I think even... You know, within within 24 hours of, of the ask for a ceasefire, Kansas City saw another homicide. I think um, I, I do think that the efforts of this group are 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 meaningful and are noted. And getting out on the street and knocking on doors and and really just asking people to stop the violence um, can be effective in um, in really in targeted areas. But the the sad fact is that um, we need we need efforts greater than this, and we need institutional support. And policies that back things like this up, and it's um, it's it's just it's a difficult thing to talk about and a huge problem to tackle. I, I was amazed though when I was looking at the police department statistics, Eric West, and that actually the murders, though obviously unacceptable, when we're hovering around 70 murders this year, it's actually significantly lower than this time last year, where we were at over 80 at this point in time um, last year. Does that say that something is working? We are doing something right. Uh, no, that doesn't say that at all. It's just that bad guys haven't started killing as many people this early in the year, and we still got the summer to go through. But let me just say this about, and I agree with Lisa, uh, their their efforts are noble, but to put a 21-day on it, probably, let's just get through the day. Don't give me a, 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 a boundary of 21 days. Let's just get through today without an act of violence or murder. And it's gonna take more than going out in the neighborhood telling people to call this number. I believe, just me personally, knowing how things go in the inner city, I would set up tents or booths in each neighborhood and let people come to me there, rather than walk up to a young guy that's kind of distraught and give him a phone number and tell him to call this number to get connected to this service Bring those services out into the community and let people connect to them one-on-one, -on -one, eye to eye, rather than calling people. It's not going to work. That Sorry. was actually my view on the vaccine as well, by the way, Eric. The, bring yes. the vaccine to people rather than expecting people to go other places. Did anybody else want to comment on that before we move on? My, I just saw in this quickly, you know, this has been tried before. Carol Coe organized a, a murder-free August many years ago, and it... it, it uh, struggled to achieve that goal. These are very, very difficult things to, to pull off. The kids who are involved in this kind of violence aren't listening to the ministers, and, and, yep. or, and they yep. weren't listening to Carol Cole back then. Lisa. You know, looking at these homicide statistics and that really what we need to see is a sustained trend year over year to, to know that anything is actually working. I, I remember even five years ago, we were we were celebrating a year where homicides had dropped significantly and we turn around and the next year they, they spike again. It really is going to take a lot of time and a truly sustained, prolonged uh, lowering of these numbers for us to know that anything is working. 
In other news this week, the biggest travelling exhibition in Union Station history open to the public. The Auschwitz exhibit features more than 700 artefacts chronicling life inside the Nazis' most notorious concentration camp. With 80,000 advance tickets sold, this could be Union Station's most attended exhibition. Do you plan to go? It's going to be of great interest to an older generation of Kansas Cityans. But what about our young people? Do they even know much about it? Well, we took a couple of Kansas City, Missouri School District students to the exhibit this week to gauge their reaction. I'm Savannah. I'm in sixth grade. I don't really know what the Holocaust is. I'm 13 years old and I'm going to eighth grade. I didn't actually learn about it in school. I learned about it throughout the years on the internet. It made me feel sympathy. Put me in the perspective of, of other people. It doesn't feel long ago nor far away, but it does feel abstract because there's no real way to actually understand something unless you go through it firsthand. Just some of our young people's reactions to the Auschwitz exhibit. It runs through the end of January at Union Station. It's hard to transition from the Holocaust to other issues because everything else, of course, seems less pressing and petty. But there are a lot of news developments getting people hot under the collar in our metro this week. Is Johnson County's largest city about to hit the go button on what is being dubbed Lexus lanes? Though perhaps they could just as easily be called Lamborghini lanes. What I'm referring to are plans in Overland Park to build an express lane on its biggest, most congested stretch of roadway. Citizens packed the seats inside Overland Park City Hall this week as Kansas transportation officials wanted through, went through public polling numbers that claimed local residents are favorable to the idea of charging tolls on 69 highway in order to fund an expansion of the roadway. There's no doubt that improvement of US 69 is an investment that we have to make. It is a user fee. It is a voluntary choice. You can get in the express lane or you can stay out of the express lane. It strikes me that KDOT's attitude is more of a, it's my way or no highway. But those in the lower income strata will be in the two free lanes traveling at a slow speed and having to watch the vehicles of those with higher incomes zip by. This will only reinforce a perception of Overland Park as being a city of halves. Okay, that final decision on that, Dave Helling, is going to come up next week. But let's be clear, if you're only paying a fee if you use the new fast lane, is it, is it really fair to use that social justice argument that we're creating a new system of haves and have-nots? If you create a highway system in which you charge people to get more convenience. Uh, you do uh, a risk having a you know a bifurcated transportation system where the rich people get to go quickly and poor people don't. So that's always an issue with toll roads. And then there's the environmental concern, Nick. And I, I haven't heard this talked about a lot, but the idea of building yet more uh, you know interstate highway uh, uh, lane miles will concern some people because the idea of aiding sprawl in our community is probably not the best approach according to some. So that may become an issue in this discussion. It also makes me think, um, uh, Lisa, about the idea that somehow this will encourage people to want to work from home. What, you, know, you could be paying up to $17.50 a week if you go the entire length, back and forth uh, every week. Uh, that would be a huge impediment for many people, and they'd prefer not to go to work at all, and they'll just work remotely. Well, I think that whether or not you've got to pay a toll to get to work or not, people are. I'm hearing people make that argument that they're enjoying working from home. But I will say something that I've learned in the last, in the year, last year especially, is that 
if you have if you have the means people are willing to pay for convenience we see that in in food delivery in grocery in grocery delivery having someone else do that if you can pay if you can afford 17 then 17 bucks a week to get to work and save yourself 10 to 15 minutes in the morning people will pay it why does it have to be this way, though, Michael? I've been amazed, actually. You know, we have all this money awash right now for infrastructure going around Washington right now. Why couldn't Cherise Davids, who represents this, put that in a bill and, and have it funded by the federal government? I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And uh, no less than Senator Roger Marshall, who is a big critic of virtually everything Biden uh, these days, says this project might be the, the state's biggest priority, and he thinks that infrastructure funds would be appropriate for it. You know, over on the Missouri side, by the way, Kansas City Congressman Emmanuel Cleaver has been able to shoehorn into a new infrastructure bill, $6 million in funding to pedestrianize the 18th and Vine Jazz District. We're talking about blocking off the main drag there to vehicles. So what difference, Eric Wesson, would that make to the 18th and Vine Jazz District? We'd have even, even less parking spaces down here. I looked at this before when they were talking about doing this. It's been a project of Ollie Gates for a long time. He wants to put a fountain down at the end of 18th and Purcell and then have force people to walk through there. But you have no place to walk to. You got one restaurant down there, the Jazz Museum, but there's no place. And those cities that they're trying to model them after, their streets are wider. And here's a cautionary tale, and you don't have to look to another city. All you have to do is look across the river to Kansas City, Kansas. Years ago in the 70s, when the pedestrian wave first started, Kansas City, Kansas, took several blocks of their downtown area on Minnesota Avenue and turned it into a pedestrian mall. And it killed almost every business down there. But Emmanuel Cleaver seems to take a very different view, Lisa Rodriguez. And he says, in fact, I heard one of the quotes that, you know, everyone in Kansas City would want to go down there and take pictures because it would be such a transformative effect if we spent $6 million doing this. Right. I think I think he's kind of envisioning a plaza full of pedestrians or farmers markets that pop up in the weekend that are that are extremely popular. Um, but I think that what what Eric and, and Michael bring up are very real concerns. There are two different visions that people are seeing here. And um, and it'll be interesting to see that play out. I think there is um, there's you know, there's high risk, I guess. If, if you had six million dollars, Dave Helling, to spend on improving the 18th and Vine Jazz District, would this be the way you would spend it? Well, it may be that this $6 million can only be expended in this way, so it's a bit of a false choice. But having said that, we've spent a lot of money at 18th and Vine, Nick, and we have not yet discovered the formula that will make that district be what everyone wanted it to be 25 years ago when the improvements first started. The Negro Leagues Museum remains an important uh, uh, anchor of that community. The Jazz Museum is showing some signs of coming back, but it isn't clear another $6 million is going to fix the problem. One of the things that I would like to see since I'm down here uh, <laughs> is, one, a, an affordable sandwich shop, something that creates foot traffic, a hat store, a shoe store. If you don't have stores and shops that cr create foot traffic, you're just wasting concrete. We have public television be... viewers all across our metro saying, yes, absolutely, Eric, I would go down there if they had a hat store. And a number <laughs> of them, 7%, said they'd go down there if there was a cravat store as well. With just 30 You'll minutes... You'd be surprised at how many black women buy a okay. hat. All righty. We're in the church. With just 30 minutes, we can't go get to every story making the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? 
Local government offices and scores of businesses closed to observe Juneteenth. First it was lifeguards in short supply, now it's ride operators, a staffing shortage forcing Worlds of Fun to close two days a week. The owners of Leewood's Town Centre Plaza Shopping Centre filing for bankruptcy. How many soccer fields does this metro need? Kansas City breaking ground this week on a new $36 million Northland soccer complex. Gives our young people place to go, gives our tax base a huge boost. And we have so many soccer complexes that we can access and that $36 million could have such a larger impact on so many more Kansas Cityans. And one of the most prized places to develop in Kansas City right now is along the expanding streetcar line. So should the city be giving away millions in tax breaks to developers who want to build alongside it? Requests for city money to help turn the former Katz drugstore into luxury apartments now sparking tension in the long-running saga over tax incentives. Lisa Rodriguez, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? I did, I did. I think, I think the debate over the Katz building has been uh, fascinating. And I do think that, that giving incentives to uh, a redevelopment along the streetcar line, the streetcar already being uh, an amenity itself, sets an interesting precedent for other, for other developers who also want to get tax breaks along that line. I think it really boils down to what, what, are, what are tax breaks for? Are they for areas that are blighted? And is, and is Main Street with a streetcar and all those amenities, does it fall into that category? Michael Mahoney. Missouri Governor Mike Parson signs a bill that says Missouri cops do not have to enforce federal gun laws. And then boom, lickety split. The Department of Justice says no, that you're violating the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution. You can't do that. Eric Wesson. I would say the uh, video releases that dealt with the murder of Malcolm Johnson at the gas station on 63rd from what the police are initially reported to the videos that have been released and what people actually saw look like two different events. Dave Helling. Speaking of the U.S. Constitution, the Supreme Court on Thursday upheld the Affordable Care Act by a vote of seven to two. Kansas and Missouri were on the losing side of that case. Both Eric Schmidt and Derek Schmidt file briefs supporting the idea of throwing out Obamacare. Both men are seeking higher office. We should keep their legal acumen in mind when we make our decisions. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed. Thank you, KCUR's Lisa Rodriguez and the stars Dave Helling, Michael Mahoney from KNBC 9 News, and always on call from the Kansas City Call, Eric Wesson. And I'm Nick Haynes. From all of us here at Kansas City PBS, be well, keep calm, and carry on. <laughs>